If you are looking to become a better leader in the outdoor adventure world, in the business world, or both, this is the Leading Steep Podcast. I'm Barry Cruz. In this podcast, I'm speaking with some of the leaders and adventure guides I admire most from around the world. I'll try and ask them the same questions you would, and I hope they'll share stories and practical ideas that we can all use to become better leaders. Welcome to the Leading Steep Podcast. In this edition of Leading Steep, I'm speaking with Jim Coffey. Jim is the founder of Esprit Whitewater based in Quebec, Canada on the Ottawa River. They're just northwest of the cities of Ottawa and Montreal and northeast of Toronto. Esprit launched its first rafts in 1992, and in the whitewater business, that's saying something. Very few outfitters have this kind of longevity and success, so Jim's doing something right. In 2008, National Geographic rated Jim's company the world's number one whitewater outfitter. Jim's even yelled commands at Justin Trudeau as a paddler at one point. Jim also happens to be one of the world's leading authorities on swiftwater rescue, and he's taught classes around the world, indirectly probably saving thousands of lives. He was a winner of the prestigious Higgins Langley Award for generously sharing knowledge in life-saving techniques. Although we don't discuss it in this interview, Jim also happens to be a leading environmental advocate in Canada. I first met Jim when we were fledgling rafting guides together on the South Island of New Zealand, a couple of tall, lanky, freckly dudes from North America trying to figure out how to be whitewater guides. And although we've been connected via social media again for the last few years, As we recorded this interview, I was seeing Jim for the first time in 35 years, regrettably only on camera. Now you should know, when this interview was recorded, Jim was recovering from radiation and chemotherapy treating throat cancer. I suggested we should postpone, but in typical hardy Canadian fashion, Jim wanted to press on. He is an exceptional leader and revered by many as an outfitter, guide, teacher, leader, and environmentalist. I know you'll enjoy this interview and Jim Coffey's take on Leading Steep. Jim Coffey, it's really great to connect with you. I think we've agreed we probably haven't seen each other in about 35 years, which just seems crazy to me. And we've had these kind of separate life tracks, but it all started with a chance meeting with you in Queenstown, New Zealand, on the South Island of New Zealand, where we shared a passion and we're really early on in this whole game around whitewater and guiding and all that. So Jim, I want to hear your whole story since then and 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 find out your background and really how you ended up being a founder of Esprit Whitewater and something of a, a well-known name in the in the river rescue field in the whitewater world. Thanks, Barry. It's so good to see you. You know, it's a bit uh, serendipitous that here we are 35 years later, able to, uh, you know, communicate with modern technology and, and things like that, a lot different than our chance meetings back in uh, in New Zealand so long ago. So my, my background comes from, I'm a, uh, a summer camp brat from a very early age at a well-known traditional canoe tripping camp here in Ontario, Canada, called Camp Candelor. And from that experience, I then got involved in, in competitive whitewater canoe and kayak racing. And as I was doing that, I realized that I also needed to have a job. So I started working as a whitewater rafting guide where I could then train for my competition, either before work or after work. And that then led to me deciding as I was entering my second year of university that I was going to just take one year off, as I tried to explain to my parents, and go and work trying to find fame and fortune as a rafting guide. And I chose New Zealand. Now, as it turns out, 35 years later, fortune hasn't really worked out. But you know, the notoriety has been, has been quite good. And I've been quite pleased to be able to make a career 
now 35 years deep in the uh, outdoor adventure, eco-adventure tourism industry. And that's as, as a guide, as an educator, as a business leader, as an advocate for both social environmental causes, which are all linked together in my business and our, our business philosophy with my outdoor education company, Esprit. So the fortune hasn't necessarily come. And I don't know that anybody's earned a ton of money in the whitewater business or as an outfit or anywhere, unless you're leading Everest trips or something, you know, but, but the fame thing has kind of happened for you, you know, at least in, in our niche of the industry of, of the whitewater business, you're a very well-known, maybe one of the most well-known advocates for river rescue and instructors of river rescue around the world. And your whitewater company, Esprit, it was named at one point one of the world's best whitewater outfitters as well, Jim. So I celebrate you and congratulate you because, by the way, when we were 19, I was on the same track. You know, I left California, went to New Zealand. I had, you know, gone to two years of college and wasn't sure what I was going to do and ended up in the South Island where you were and guiding some river trips down there. So it was incredible. Well, you know, it's quite amazing, Barry, because sometimes it's just that having the combination of courage and planning and a few of those other things to take that first step and you just never know where that first step is going to to lead and for me you know that first step of getting out of my comfort zone and and doing something different which was to go to New Zealand completely underfunded and underexperienced wide-eyed and you know long-haired tall lanky rafting guides like like yourself yeah, same here. <laughs> and one of the things that, that impressed me so much about when we first met was that I know that in my college experience, I had a series of the regular standard courses. And I know that you were at Chico State and you had a course in wine tasting, which impressed oh, yeah, me. yeah, ballroom dancing. <laughs> <laughs> which impressed the heck out of me. I thought, man, I'm going to the wrong school. I'm taking like math and biology and anthropology. That was my social graces semester, Jim. I had a film class and ballroom dancing and wine tasting and maybe an English class or some communications or something like that. But that's very true. I had a wine tasting class at, at, at Chico State. And it's amazing that now, 35 years later, I, I look and see what I'm doing and some of the, you know, those accomplishments and, and things like that of, of leading an industry and also it's so impressive to see what you're doing in a combination of management and leadership in the finance world and, and things like that. So thank you, Jim. It's amazing how, how we move in different directions, but, but those directions can still have a lot of similarities to them. And perhaps what draws that together is our combined experience as outdoor adventure guides. No, exactly right. You know, and, and this is one of the focus of my project, you know, one of the focuses of my project leading steep is that, those of us who were guides and who have been guides and who experienced guiding and learned so much, making mistakes and, and getting better along the way, you know, we all took different tracks, right? Some of us became full-time outfitters and, and you know, full-time long-term guides like you did. And some of us took a different track and, you know, instead of, as I say, the, the flotation collar world, moved to the white collar world, you know, or, or many other jobs. So I just find it fascinating the things that you've learned in your business and how you've been successful in your world. And, 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 you know, I'm always proud of the things that I learned in that business that have had a positive effect for me in the business world as well. So one of your real focuses that I find fascinating, Jim, is, is you are a natural teacher and you give a lot of time and focus to teaching. In particular, I'm inspired by, you know, young people that you're teaching. So, when you built your company, maybe you talk a little bit about how you hired guides and selected guides and trained guides, and then also some of your more recent programs, like your wild program, Jim, I'd love to hear more about that. 
Sure. It's amazing. I, I don't come from a teaching background, but I had a an experience back in the early 80s in 1981 where I went on an expedition up in the Arctic. And it turns out that the two leaders of that trip, who I'm still in touch with today, were both teachers. And then from the group, there were eight of us as participants, five male and three females. And it turns out of the eight, five of them ended up becoming teachers or professors. And, and myself, where I, instead of teaching in a formal school, I had to create my own school to become a teacher. But it's quite amazing. I'm sure that it was the influence of these original teachers leading the trip, Doug and James Skeeter Lee, that affected us as 15 and 16-year-old kids to, to end up making that our, our career. And one of the things that I really like and I joke about quite a bit is that when I have my staff and someone walks onto our property, we'll often say, you know, someone will look and say, who's that? And how old are they? And my, my typical answer is, oh, I think they're our age. And some of my staff will say, Jim, you're like my mom's age. Yeah. <laughs> there is no, there is no our age. But, but I think that being around young people and educating young people is a way to keep us young and keep us, uh, connected to, to what's, what's going on. And, and also it, it gives us the opportunity to to make teaching reciprocal because I think I learn a lot from from young people, a modern way of doing things and new new approaches to to doing things as opposed to just being someone who's been stuck and stoic in a certain teaching route or vibe and that they don't have an opportunity to get out of it. I love your approach there, Jim, and it really calls to me. My dad was a high school teacher for 35 years, you know, and and he maintained kind of youth and vigor and energy for all of that time. And and I think you're right, is that when you teach young people, you really get as much as you put into it, you know. And that's one of the things, again, that I love doing. And you know what? I'm really hopeful that Leading Steep will appeal to those kind of folks who want to learn to be better leaders and better guides. And that's why I think your lessons are, you know, and the folks that you teach are so important, Jim. So, you know, talk about when you first founded your company. You, you It was, you know, you and two boats and 500 clients in the first year. And then, you know, then you just exploded from there, right? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. When I first started, I had no idea what I was doing from a business perspective. But, you know, I was a very strong operator. So I had a high level of competency. And when we look at one of the schools that I teach for, National Outdoor Leadership Schools, I look at pillars of leadership. One of those pillars is be competent at whatever you're you're doing. So I was fortunate enough to have a high level of competency to branch out on my own and learn a bunch of other things sort of in new ways. And and this was prior to now where there's outdoor education and, and outdoor leadership courses. And you can study these things at college, or, you know, I'm sure at, at Chico State. Yeah, for yeah, sure. You get a degree <laughs> in, it, yeah, in, in outdoor recreation or, or adventure leadership. Yeah. So those things didn't exist when I was getting started. So I had to kind of make it up. And one of the things that, that I realized, I also started my business in a recession. And although it sounds like that would be a challenging or difficult or maybe an, an imprudent thing to do, it taught me how to be wise with my funds and how to be creative and maybe even a little bit gorilla and in my way of operating. And one of the great lessons that I learned very early on is that we had a, a Saturday in the springtime and we didn't have any one scheduled for, for a trip that day. And we were just going to have the day off. And... And we got a phone call on Friday night 
a guy by the name of Ted Knight, and he asked whether he could come rafting the next day. We all looked at each other, and it was like, well, yeah, we're a rafting company, so we're going to take him. He says, well, I also don't have transportation. And I said, well, we'll come and pick you up. And that meant picking him up in our biggest city, Ottawa, which is an hour and a half or two-hour drive away. And so we sent a vehicle down, and we picked him up, and we brought him up, and we went rafting. We had to actually find some other volunteers to fill out the rest of the raft. And instead of, we were supposed to bring him back to our place for a barbecue, et cetera, but a friend was having a birthday and we asked him if he wanted to come to the birthday party. And he said, yes. And we just <laughs> made this, this amazing personal connection. And it turns out that Ted was in charge of a, a big government project that, that people from Prince Edward Island, another one of our provinces, were, were doing their training in Ottawa. And so all these islanders had nowhere else or they were just going to work and back to their hotel. And so Ted would tell them that they could choose to get paid, but go rafting for the day. Like a leadership experience, a learning experience. Or just stay at work for the day. And so in my first year where we took only 500 people rafting for my fledgling company or business, probably about 350 or 400 of them came from Ted, which which meant that I learned at that point in time that you never know who that one ultra important customer is going to be and that our best form of marketing is actually in our product. And even if we had to take a loss on the day, we might be able to figure out a way to turn that into a gain. And, and so much so that I often refer back to this, that if we didn't accept Ted Knight to come rafting that day, that we might not have made it. And so we look at that at that model still today, that when someone calls up and, you know, what can we do? Well, we'll try to see whether we can switch them to Sunday and we'll try and do something else. But, but really, you never know who that most important person is going to be. And you need to treat everyone as if they're that person. And that was a key to our success. I think it's a great principle. Yeah. So you had been a guide for six years or so uh, right before that, because I, again, actually, yeah, we met in about 1986 and you started your company in 92. So Correct. you've been guiding for other outfitters and seeing how they were doing business and figuring things out. And and I like to say too, Jim, that when we started rafting was the dawn of the self-bailing era, right? You know, I mean, the self-bailer had just been introduced, the SOTAR and, you know, those boats had just come out, right? Exactly. In fact, I had never seen one before until I met you. And it was like this magic thing. <laughs> and so that that then led me to bringing self-bailing rafts into my region of which now everyone only uses self-bailing rafts. But, you know, like that was obviously the that first step. And, and then I was also fortunate in those six years between when we first met and when I started my company was that I was able to spend each of my winters working my way around the world as as a guide. So I was able to work in Africa. I was able to work in India and Nepal and, and Australia and, and, you know, all of those, that worldly experience back in the day where we're traveling as a guide, there were less local guides. So it was more, it was easier to be able to find work in different places as an experienced international. That's what helped form me to become the, you know, the guide that I eventually became. 
to me, that was kind of the golden age of, of guiding. And, and by the way, I didn't participate in that because, again, I chose this sort of white collar, you know, business world path, which I don't regret and has been fabulous. But I do remember being jealous of hearing from you and hearing about folks like you who were traveling the world and, and guiding on the Zambezi or guiding on the, the, the BOBO, you know, or the Apuramac or wherever that was around the world and, and thinking what an amazing experience that would be. I mean, it's definitely a different lifestyle, right? You know? I was having martinis at the Ritz in London and, you know, you were sleeping in your tent and, <laughs> you know, in, in Costa Rica or something. But, you know, that's not to say uh, you do value either one of those experiences. I'm still kind of jealous of you, Jim. Yeah, I was going to say, poor you. But <laughs> it's, it's funny because, you know, to find out about that back then, I would have to have sent you a postcard. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And now you can go to social media and, and get jealous straight away. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot more jealousy in the world because of that. Right. Well, I still remain mildly jealous of you, uh, you know, and doing, doing what you're doing and owning this company. And your website is terrific. Your guides look fantastic. So you are based slightly north of, of the city of Ottawa, right? West of Montreal, northeast of Toronto, right? Correct. So I'm actually in an ideal location based right on the banks of the Ottawa River in western Quebec, a region called the Pontiac. And what's interesting about my region is that, you know, its main industry has always been in in the like primary industry in the forest industry. Now that's taken a bit of a downturn and rising up through the ashes from that initial boom of of men who used to go up and cut trees and bring them out onto the river and float them downstream to our to our mills here at the junction of the Ottawa. Now the phoenix rising up out of the ashes has been tourism. And we're in a region where there are three main tributaries which come into the Ottawa, all of which you could do canoeing expeditions on for anywhere between two and 14 days. And if I were to draw a line heading almost due north from from where I am into the bush, you know, I think I would probably only cross, to the best of my knowledge, maybe two paved roads before you reach the Arctic. Wow. And when I first started here, it was interesting because people told me, oh, I don't know about starting your business in the Pontiac. There's nothing here. And I said, great, that's exactly what I want. This region has this incredible eco-adventure inventory of, of things to do from whitewater rafting and canoeing and kayaking and hiking and trekking and, and all sorts of amazing things on the edge of a megalopolis between Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, and then another band that goes as far away as Detroit, New York, and Boston. So within a 10-hour drive, we have millions of people on a very long rafting season, which starts the beginning of May and goes through until uh, the Canadian Thanksgiving in the middle of October. I didn't realize you started as early as May. I thought it would might have been still too cold that far north near the Arctic. Well, it is too cold. <laughs> people are sporty, though. Canadians are pretty tough. We're a hardy breed, Canadians. And so, so we start with, the, you know, with our spring freshet. And then amazingly, on our river, it becomes you know, warmer than your rivers in California come July and August. Fascinating. Tell me about your, your guides and how, where you find guides. And, and then I'd love to hear more about your, your teaching ethos. And then Jim, you also have another whole portion of your business in Latin America as well. So let's come to that in a minute. But, but first of all, tell me about your Canadian operation, where you find your guides, you know, do you hire brand new people? Do you hire experienced guides? What's your training program? Like, how do you do that? 
the most amazing thing that that we've worked out over the you know 25 years of of esprit is that it's much easier to train a great person to become a great whitewater guide than it is to take a great whitewater person and train them to become a great person. Yeah. Right. 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 You know? So one of the things that's very important for us before we take someone on for training is that we really want to try to, to get to know them to ensure that they're of that caliber person that we want to have representing us wearing our, our t-shirt and our brand. So that's something which is, which is really important because the, you know, the actual whitewater side of things with time, most people will get if they've got, you know, a certain level of fitness and a certain level of enthusiasm, et cetera. So when I look at, at a resume that comes in, the things that I look at almost immediately is I go right down to the bottom of the resume and I get to other interests and and things that I like to see is I like to see people that have traveled somewhere. So they understand our travel ethos and the education that happens with travel and the compassion and the kindness, especially for people who travel to developing areas of the, of the world. So those are things that we are attracted to. I'm attracted to people who speak multiple languages. That's a, a great skill to have practically. But again, it also shows a, an interest in other places and other cultures some solid portion of your customer base are french speaking as well right yeah absolutely and so and we have people who are spanish speaking and and german and people who come from all all around the world so when they're able to be greeted and led in their own language that's again a, a kudos to the company and a bonus for us i like to look and see whether uh, anyone's a musician or a magician or any of those other wonderful things. They volunteered. They've done something similar to the Peace Corps or Canada has a program called Katimovic that they can they can see that they can have a high tolerance for adversity and uncertainty through their other experiences, which again is something that happens within our industry that we think of as a valuable leadership trait. So, you know, the I worked at Home Depot for a while doesn't register for me. Even I'm a class five kayaker. Well, that's good. But what about those other, what I refer to as intangibles? That's excellent. No, and I appreciate that you hire for culture and and then teach the technical skill, right? And then in Canada, then do you run as many outfitters do a week-long guide school or something like that and and vet and hire out of your guide school? Or how does how does that work, Jim? It varies. So we we do a spring training as a as a guides course or as a guide school. But as you mentioned, we also run a three month whitewater guide training program called Wild, which is the Whitewater Intensive Leadership Development School. And typically, not this year because of the COVID world, that's one month in Canada, one month in the United States, and one month in Mexico. And so when we do that type of course, we've spent three months already with our potential candidate guides. And, and what's amazing about that is that, you know, when they first arrive, they're at our Canadian operation, which is the biggest, most commercial side of what we do. But when we finish, they're in Mexico with, or Costa Rica with one of our Latin operations. And in those Latin operations, it's much smaller and 
and my connection with each of them is tighter and closer. And I think that they get a better feeling of what our personal ethos is in the way that we treat people in, in those locations that, that we have people who not that we just want them to work for us, but we have people who really want to work for us as opposed to just us wanting to, to have them. And so it makes for some pretty magical experiences and you never know when having those well-trained people are going to be necessary or going to come back to save you. You make a life or death difference, right? Yeah, exactly. And so I often refer to Richard Branson's quote where people will say, you know, but if you train those people and you put invest so much in them and then what happens if they leave? Well, again, the, what's worse than them leaving is what if they, what if you don't invest in them and they stay? And so, so I'm, I'm firmly believe that we need to be as educators and trainers unselfish with our, and very generous with our knowledge and our skills. And we want to pass those on as well as we can. And if that means that some people move on, uh, that's fine. If they move on to a competitor, that's fine too. But the key is how well they perform while they're with us. And they can't do that if we're not generous with the tools and in sharing those with them. So speaking of which, you're going through some challenges right now. I mean, people won't hear this coming through the audio right now, but but Jim, you are recovering right now from pretty serious throat cancer, chemotherapy, and radiation. And I know that that your operation was at some risk over the summer because of these challenges, your personal physical health challenges right now. So, I mean, maybe relate that to, to how, how the company survived and even thrived this year in this crazy COVID year as well, right? Well, you know, it, it's crazy, Barry, because whenever I speak to any of my longer term guides and I ask them about where their strengths are in leadership, you know, whether it's communication or competency or vision and action or judgment and decision making, they always come up with saying that they have a high tolerance for adversity and uncertainty. And over the last four years, we had a uh, decimating fire at our base camp. I read about that. You lost your whole barn, right? All the gear and everything? Not not all of our gear, but but a bar and restaurant and our, our main base. The, the following day, however, we managed to take 70 people rafting on two different rivers. Wow. After having your barn burned down. After everything burnt, went up in smoke. We then last year purchased a new property to open as a bed and breakfast. And two weeks after purchasing it, the 100-year flood, which was the second time we've had a 100-year flood in the last three years, ended up coming and and wiping out one of our buildings and destroying the you know the flooring of another. So we were able to get over that. And then this year, you know, COVID existed. We thought that we were going to be shuttering our programs right up until the middle of June. Next thing you know, by the end of June, we're running our first trips. And then by the end of June, beginning of July, I was diagnosed with cancer. So this whole idea about about training people well, my my whole summer, which was in jeopardy in a bunch of different ways, one from the COVID perspective, two from a health perspective, ended up being saved by an incredible staff led by one of my, you know, top guides over over the years and and closest friends, someone that I admire so much for his skill and leadership, which he gained a lot of his experience here with us. 
named Ty Smith, who managed our program during a bunch of these other challenges that that I was being faced with. And I try to think if if I wasn't as involved in in Ty's background, that he wouldn't have been able to give back as much as as he was able to this summer. So so you learn a lot of things, you know, these type of operations and acting as a guide is really about being part of a team. And when you're part of the team, either as a the, the designated leader or an active follower or whatever your role happens to be, you want to have some great teammates. You know, you want your teammates to be as best as possible from the, from the most experienced one down to the newest one. And so it was quite amazing to have, you know, Ty come in and sort of really roll with a lot of the things that I would typically be doing. And we also had an interesting thing that happened apart having from training up some newer guides I had a friend of mine, not unlike yourself, who 25 years ago I worked as a guide with, who came for a weekend in August and he stayed for the entire rest of the summer as one of our our guides. So we kind of blew the dust off of our our friend Cookie, who then stuck with us for the for the rest of the summer. And that's where building those relationships and you know when things go sour, not blowing the bridge up afterwards. You know you want to keep that door open because you never know when those people that you've contributed to are going to come back and contribute back to you. And in this case, in, in spades for my, for my case. Maybe talk to me a little bit about, you know, your guide school or the way that you teach folks specifically about that, Jim, about leadership and about teaching people and about delivering wonderful culture to your clients and all of that. Talk about just kind of the culture of your company and the culture of leadership you've got there. Well, again, as, as I mentioned, Barry, the, the key is to, to start with the right people. If you have the wrong people, you know, you can try and have them buy into your culture or sell them your culture. And and if they're not going to, they're just not going to. So when someone goes whitewater rafting for the first time and they look down the center of the, the raft, looking right over the bow and waves are crashing and you're moving, you know, down the river at breakneck speed, et cetera, that it's all full of action, but it's an illusion because when you're whitewater rafting, you're never really going more than, 15 miles an hour, you know? So if you were to hop in your car and try and drive 15 miles an hour, like through a school zone, you can't, right? Because it's, it's too slow. You're too accustomed to it. So what we want to do is we need to get our young guides to get away from the idea of how fast and furious and adrenaline oriented our, our activity is and teach them that it's, it's more about control. So while everyone else is in this wild and crazy that was that was nuts that the guide has lots of lots of time to be able to make the right maneuvers that mentally they're cool as a cucumber while everyone else is on on the edge of of adrenaline and adventure so there are a bunch of different ways that that we do that and and one of the problems that we have once we've done that once we've been successful in slowing that down in people's minds well, then they start thinking, well, why am I doing this? This isn't as fun and crazy as exciting as it as the first time I went. And that's when we're able to really kick in how important it is that what we do is about people rather than about necessarily that that 
passion or that wild and crazy activity. It's about sharing it with people. It's about being an ambassador for the environment and the the river corridors that we that we descend. So one of the key things that that I drill into our guides straight from the very beginning is that often people will say, oh yeah, you know what? One of the things, I'm just not very good with names. Well, I believe in our industry, you have to be good with names because it's about people. So we, we teach our staff one of the first full on, this is a lesson that you have to learn and be competent at, is how to remember, we, we put up to seven people in our raft, is how to remember everybody's name in the raft, straight off the bat. Tell me your technique about this, because Jim, it's so funny, as I'm writing the book, as I'm working on the book, I just wrote about this. I am so passionate about this as well. I think names are so important, you know, and and I've met guides, I know you have too, they haven't worked for your company, it sounds like, but who really don't care about names. And they're still really interested in getting tips from clients and all that, you know, and and think it's important and cool that they're a guide, but they could care less about names. Like, I just think that's such a miss, you know, such a mistake. So I'm with you entirely, Jim. I think that names are so important. What do you teach, if you don't mind sharing, about how you get folks to remember names? Sure. So typically what we would do, things are a little bit different with COVID now as far as our positioning in the boat, but typically we would direct our guides over a flat water section before our first raft to sit at the very front of the raft. And when they do sit at the front of the raft, they'll ask the person on the front left what their name is, and their name might be Bob, and the person on the front right might be Mary. And then we get them to repeat everybody's names the entire way through. So they go, okay, Bob and Mary, and who's behind Mary? And that's Susan. Okay, Bob, Mary, Susan, and who's behind Susan? Chris, Bob, Mary, Susan, Chris. Until they're able to successfully complete everybody's name in the boat. What's key is that they always remember those front two people, Bob and Mary, and whoever is sitting beside them, which might be John. Because in the event that they forget someone else's name, they can just whisper to John and say, hey, who's that person again? But, but when, you're, when you're in a people business, I mean, how can you not remember what their name is? Or how can you get their name wrong? So... So that from the beginning, at lunchtime, we have a, a break and I'll ask our, you know, a, a guide, you know, who's that? Is that person in your boat? Yes. What's their name? And if they don't know, they're not doing their job properly. No, that's great. I, I love this ethos about your company, Jim, already, because like you said, I, I, I just think it's so vital. What I would often do when I was guiding trips, you know, commercially, a, a good deal was that I would start to get to know folks while I was helping them adjust their life jacket, you know? So I would say, you know, what's your name? Oh, it's Jim, you know? And I'd say, oh, where are you from, Jim? You know, and then I start to ask questions. And then I'd also be able to repeat their name as I would ask those follow-up questions, you know? And so that would often help. And then you have this trigger, you know, this mental trigger to associate a name with somebody you already know or something else, you know, or make a silly game out of it. But I'm with you entirely. I think that leaders in general, by the way, in business, it happens too, is they underutilize people's names or feel like it may be less important to remember their names. And I just think it's really critical as a leader. Yeah. If I'm teaching a course with up to 20 participants, if I don't have everybody's name worked out by the first day's lunch, I think, I think I've failed and it doesn't come naturally. It takes some work. I'll often write people's names down. I'll write, you know, if they've said something about themselves, you know, what they want to learn in particular or where they're from. 
I register all of those things so that by the time midday on our, our first day comes that I can then pull people's names off and, and people are as impressed with that as they are with what they learned on the course. I agree. Yeah. You know, when, when I would do large presentations or, you know, with 15 or 20 people in the room, usually I'd pick a few people at minimum whose names I might hear from somebody else or whatever, and then use their names in the conversation. Like you say, people are always impressed that you remember names because it shows you care, you know, right. It shows that you are, you are oriented that way, that you are really listening, that you really care. So this is a leadership nugget, Jim. I think, you know, names are so critical, right? Well, I'm glad we connected on that one. Knocked it out of the park. So you mentioned that Ty was one of your favorites, if I can, if I use that term, but you know, when you think about Ty, you think about the best guys that you've had, you know, what are the traits that, that, that come to mind for you, for those folks who, you know, what is it that Ty does differently than, than, you know, and your more elite guides do differently than other folks, Jim? Well, again, our, our elite guides all start off with being uh, exceptional humans, you know, exceptional people and they're, smart and they're kind and they're compassionate they're self-aware you know so they they understand their sort of role in life and in the community etc they show a uh, a sense of humility or humbleness they're also uh, great communicators they have great judgment decision making they've got this tolerance for adversity they behave well while wearing our call it company crest or uniform or and on top of it they show a high level of competency in each of the the disciplines of which they're that they work in so so i know that any of these top performers of which you know i could just start naming off 10 or maybe 100 of them are are not just amazing in their whitewater world or their outdoor adventure world these are people who are going to be successful or are successful in anything that they put their their mind to and that's because those those leadership skills span the entire spectrum of their life rather than just this small corner which is their relation to their their whitewater abilities yeah that's that's been my feeling and again that's why i was inspired to to write this book and work on this project is that being a guide and encountering and, and leading so many people on a daily basis, learning names, getting to getting these folks over humps and hurdles that they might not have anticipated that they could. It just, I think it just renders you a better human being, right? So there's just a lot about the whole nature of guiding that, uh, that I've loved. Hey, tell me a story about your favorite guiding experiences personally, Jim, like, you know, maybe not leading a company and owning a company, but actually guiding people wherever that may have been in the world, Africa or Latin America or Canada or wherever. This is going to sound like a, a weird, quote, favorite experience, but, but it's an interesting story because despite having been in this industry for a long time, after I'd been in it for quite a while, I applied and was accepted to do a, um, an instructor training program with Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership Schools. Prestigious, by the way, right? Yeah. And when they were accepting applications for this, this program, they asked some very pointed questions. They said, what went well and what went poorly? And what was your, the best thing that happened and what was the worst? But we have an interesting story that happened years ago, which starts off with, and you know, it was quite, quite unfortunate, but my operation 
in Canada years ago, we had a fatality, whitewater rafting. And in that fatality, it turned out that the young girl had had a a heart-related issue or problem that she had had from birth. And so she ended up having an aneurysm in her aorta, which just opened up on our trip. And our guides did the very best they could, and they worked on her like champions, but it just turned out that, that she didn't survive. So, you know, all those things are, are very difficult and weighs very heavy on people who are conscientious and conscientious outfitters and obviously for the family and friends and, and everyone, et cetera. But one of the things that we realized when we analyzed that situation, although it wouldn't have made a difference at that time, this could have been someone more classic, like a older, drinking, smoking, overweight, unhealthy person that that had a heart attack and and this was right when automated external defibrillators first came out and so we thought you know although it wouldn't have helped here we should get a defibrillator and carry it on our rafting trips and and because we might have that heart classic heart attack happen and the next you know that idea of early recognition early cpr then a big jump up to early defibrillation is part of that chain of survivability. So we had this defibrillator and we carried it around the world with us for about five or six years. And we never used it. And it was in our, in our first aid kit. And we just thought, you know, one day it's going to be valuable for us. And on our wild program, one of the things that we do is at the end of the program, our students have a self-led expedition without any staff members on it. It's like the graduation or the pushing our students out of the nest so that they feel come day 91 that they're competent to do this on their own, that they don't need one of our wild instructors holding their hand through that whole section. So in this final two-day expedition, just before we were about to all go out to the coast and have a good time paddling at the ocean and and doing it on the river, et cetera, we got a phone call on our satellite phone as we were just preparing to do this next driving trip. And the call was, was that we had had a cardiac arrest on the river and it happened at a location, which nobody else knows this location. It's only a spot that I refer to on the river as Michael Jackson rock. And it's just this rock that to me looks like Michael Jackson. So the call came in and we were told that they were just downstream of Michael Jackson Rock. So I got in our vehicle with a bunch of our staff, and we drove out there, and dread was upon me. What am I going to do? I've got someone who's a fatality in Mexico, and how am I going to talk to the family, and what's going to happen, et cetera. But by the time I got to where Michael Jackson Rock would be, or close enough, and got the vehicle turned around, my students came up through the bushes carrying the subject saying that they have his pulse back because they defibrillated him with our defibrillator that I've never used, but I've carried around the world for the last five years and that he had a pulse. So we had some oxygen in our vehicle. We put him on oxygen. We had a pulse. We drove to the hospital we got him into the ICU. We got an air ambulance to come pick him up from Canada. The air ambulance flew him back to Canada. 
where he then opened his eyes in the intensive care and asked the nurse, where am I? And she said, you're in London, Ontario, Canada. He says, no, I'm not. I'm <laughs> kayaking in Mexico. Oh, and, and she said, no, you passed away in Mexico, but you're alive here. And so it turns out that that student had a previous heart condition called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which when you hear about young athletes who collapse on the sports field, that's normally what they have. And so they um, ended up implanting an automated defibrillator in his, in his chest. And the best part of the story is that this all happened about three kilometers from the, the takeout and the termination of their self-led expedition. Three months later, he and his brother flew back to Mexico, hopped in their kayaks from the location where he was defibrillated on the bank and paddled the final three kilometers into town to complete his graduation. That's incredible, Jim. So this was a story where, to be honest, I really wasn't that involved. I was the ambulance driver, basically. But I often think that in our world of outdoor adventure, and I think that this can also be related to business and all sorts of different worlds, is that sometimes people say, wow, that was really lucky. But sometimes we manufacture our own luck. And we're able to manufacture our luck where preparation collides with opportunity or opportunity collides with preparation. And so because of the first incident, we ended up then saying, okay, what would we do if we had this situation happen again? We got a defibrillator. It was a big investment at the time. We carried it around the world with us, lugged this. They were bigger back then. And then we got to use it. And it turns out that despite all these other, you know, great accolades that my business has been able to get, you know, we had this incredible rating through National Geographic and we've won a series of different awards, et cetera. My career highlight is the fact that this student, Joel, ended up recuperating on the side of the river in, in Mexico. And I wasn't really even there, but I was part of that preparation, which made, made such a difference. And we train our staff with that and we tell that story. And these students who ended up using the defibrillator were like sick of having defibrillator scenarios. It's like, oh my gosh, not another defibrillator scenario. But let me tell you, after that incident, not one of them complained about ever having to deal with one of those scenarios again. It's an incredible story, Jim. And like you say, I mean, you were, you know, you were prepared for that. You taught folks to be prepared for that. And that, that made the difference. And, you know, sadly, I have to say, you know, this, when you are on the river and you are an adventure guide in almost any discipline, and you're very serious, as I say, you're a steep leader, you're running hard, hard stuff. You're going to have these situations. And in fact, I did, you know, I was on a trip in California where, you know, a, a pretty unhealthy gentleman fell out of the boat, got back in the boat, was pulled back in the boat, and then had a heart attack in the boat and passed away. This was in the sort of the pre-defibrillator days, right? You know, you didn't have them available, you know, outside of uh, hospitals and so forth or outside of emergency personnel. But you, your point is really well taken that you prepared yourself for this scenario. You prepared your young leaders for this scenario, and they came through in a life or death situation. Jim, it's incredible. Really great story. The idea of that, the of being proactive versus reactive, I think is very important in in whatever industry you're in, whether it's outdoor adventure or whether it's finance. You know, speaking of legacies too, 
you were honored with the Higgins and Langley Award, Langley Award, pardon me, for um, excellence in, in water rescue. I mean, tell me about that and tell me how that portion of the business and, and of your life has evolved there. Sure. And again, this is a huge honor. The Higgins, Higgins and Langley Award is the sort of premier award for swift water rescue. And they divide that into a wide variety of different categories. So one of those categories is for program development and education. And so I was fortunate enough that I sort of fell into creating a water rescue video series, one of the first of its kind, called Rescue for River Runners. And again, myself and my videographer, Mike McKay of 5 to 9 Productions, an amazing adventure videographer, didn't really know where we were going with this, but we decided that it was time to do a series of, of short instructional rescue video clips so that people could get a little bit hungry about the idea of swift water rescue. Hi, I'm Jim Coffey. We're about to show you a series of river rescue techniques, a combination of skills, tips and tricks to make you a better river rescuer. This is designed specifically for river runners. For people who want to run bigger, harder whitewater, we want you to also have the necessary skills as far as rescue goes, to be able to do that in the event that something goes wrong. And we tried to do it to make them kind of cool. Like there was always some good, challenging paddling in each of the videos. And then a series of tips or tricks that would come out trying to inspire people to, you know, as you up your challenge on the river, as many people are doing faster than they ever have done before, that you also want to up your rescue skills. And, and it's been quite amazing. I was, you know, Mike and I were honored with a Higgins and Langley Award that was uh, presented to us by none other than Slim Ray, who's one of the, you know, the original legends of Swiftwater Rescue. So I like to... Wrote the book, right? I mean, you know, really. He did Literally. write the book. And so yeah. it's nice to, to follow along as a, sort of in that next generation and take it to a different medium to taking it to video. But what else has been amazing, which I didn't realize was going to be the case, was that we did that video series and we put that up online and we did it all for free. It was a non-lucrative project. That's where you know, we volunteered our time. We volunteered a, a lot of our, you know, the costs, et cetera, to, for that, that project. We got a little bit of funding through NRS and a few other groups, but but there was certainly no wage to do it. And we filmed in Canada, the United States, Mexico, and Costa Rica. So you know, we had a, a lot of varied background. And, and so the idea of doing it and, and putting it out as a free tool that people could just go and look at and download whenever they, they wanted, we didn't know what direction that was going to go in. But one, we were able to, you know, be honored with this prestigious award, the Higgins and Langley Award. And two, whenever I go paddling anywhere now, it used to be, oh, I, yeah, I think I remember you from part of the Canadian team for raft racing, or, or I read about your company here or there. Now it's, you're the guy from the rescue videos. So we sometimes go out on a limb and make things happen. And usually we're able to turn that around that if there needs to be some type of uh, financial payback or whatever, we're then able to make something like that, that happen, or it just happens naturally and it makes you feel good. 
first of all, what a, a gift to the world to tell you the truth. I mean, who knows potentially how many lives your coaching and counsel on River Rescue has actually saved, right? And I'm talking about both the video series or maybe even the inspiration from the video series for other people to take actual classes and participate because it's a pretty physical thing. I mean, you got to do it. You can't learn it by watching video. You know, one of my favorite biz business pundits is Tom Peters, and he says, give away your best work. You know, it will come back to you, right? You give away your best work, which is really what you've done here. I think a, a pretty extraordinary gift, but uh, a really great story there, Jim. Well, I mean, this has been amazing to, one, to reconnect and also to, you know, share stories and discussions of something that we're, that we're both connected to, even though we're coming at it from from different parts of the the world and different parts of the the work spectrum, et, et cetera. Well, listen, let's wrap up. I, I just want to tell you how great it's been to connect with you. Like you said, we've been kind of, you know, somewhat connected through social media. It's, I've been very proud to watch your progress with Esprit Whitewater and in the river rescue world and for everything you're doing. It's really fun to think of, you know, having boated with you as, as young dudes on the South Island in New Zealand, you know, way back then at 19 years old, 20 years old, you know, in Queenstown, but I'm really proud for you, Jim. And I'm, I'm really glad that you've come through your, through your first cancer treatment successfully. And I'm really wishing the best for you and your family and your company and all of that here as well. Thank you very much, Barry. It's been great connecting. You know, they often say this idea that that doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, and I'm, I'm quite sure despite, you know, right now I'm talking to you from a bed on a feeding tube, <laughs> not at, not at my physical best, but, but I'm sure that I'm going to be able to turn this around and, and make it a positive. And I appreciate your, your kind thoughts. I'm excited to, to move forward and see what, you know, the next chapter is about. Bring it on. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hey, last last note, you know, I have business in Toronto. I have uh, some teammates in Toronto. I come up there reasonably regularly in a non-COVID world. So I'm going to try to book some time in this summer or the summer next and, and, and come up. I would love to meet your guides and see your company and, and get to flow with you again, Jim, on any river anywhere. That sounds amazing. Thanks, Barry. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you, Jim. Well, if you're a paddler looking for a whitewater trip in Canada and want to be sure you're traveling with extremely well-trained guides and a committed outfitter, you're going to look for whitewater.ca. That's Esprit Whitewater's website. And if you're a young person looking for some IRL offline adventure and a life-changing experience, you might find that at Esprit as well. I doubt there's a more robust whitewater training program from any rafting company anywhere. It was a blast to connect with my friend Jim, and I'm sure you'll join me in wishing him well in his recovery. I'm so grateful you're interested to listen to the Leading Steep podcast, and I hope you'll subscribe and stay tuned for future episodes. This project has no paid sponsors at present, but if you'd like to stick around for a moment or two, I'll be happy to tell you about the companies I patronize and some of the products I like to use when I'm chasing adventure. The credits for this show are short. I'm writing and recording the show myself, but I've engaged the excellent professionals at Hatch for production, editing, polishing, and coaching, and they've been wonderful to work with. If you're producing a podcast, find them at usehatch.fm. I'm also using a terrific tool for remote interviews called squadcast.fm. On the river, I'm a big fan of NRS, where you can find just about anything river-related. I wear Adidas Terex shoes, an Astro Life jacket, a Gath helmet from Australia, and when not in a wetsuit or dry suit, Eddie Bauer guide shorts every single day in the work-from-home world, and Columbia shirts for comfort. 
My boat of choice for hundreds of class five runs over many years has been Sotar. It was the state of the art raft then and remains so today. Thank you so much for listening to the Leading Steep podcast. I'm Barry Cruz.